What's up, guys? Welcome back to the It's Over podcast. I'm Richard. I'm with my co-host, Patrick. Today, we have a very special guest, our good friend, Emily Lee. She currently attends Scripps College, and we brought her on to talk about a lot of things, her somewhat viral Instagram account, and what it's like to start a podcast of her own. So thanks for coming on, Emily. Thanks. It's truly an honor to be here. I was incredibly flattered that you asked me. Hi, Emily Lee. Hey, Patrick Yingma. <laughs> Patrick, <laughs> do you know my middle name? Emily Yang. <laughs> no, Emily. <laughs> starts with a Y. Does it start with a Y? It doesn't start with a Y. That's a good try. But I usually address you as Patrick Yangma. You do. But now that I think about it, I don't think What's your you know middle my middle name. name. Is Yang your mother's maiden name? Is that why it's, you, it's your middle name? It's my dad's middle name. It's your dad's middle name. My middle name is my mom's maiden name, which is Cheng. C-H-E-N-G? C-H-E-I-N-G. Damn, you guys have very Chinese middle names. Yeah. Do you have a white middle name, Richard? My middle name is Jay, so it's I think it's white. kind of white. It's very white. And also my first name is okay. Richard, so... Yeah. <laughs> It's pretty white. I think my parents wanted me to become as American Assimilate. as possible. Are you yes. serious? Where did Jay come from? It's actually short for Jay Young, but I don't even know what that is. I don't even think that's Chinese, though. I just say Jay because it makes more sense. <laughs> what? Jay Young What is on your passport? <laughs> <laughs> okay, it doesn't matter. Meanwhile, no, 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 what's, what's on your passport and also what's your social security number and also the childhood street that you grew up on? My social security number starts with a six, <laughs> so you can figure out the rest. It's helpful. Um, let's talk about why we brought you on, Emily. We wanted to talk about your Instagram account. Okay, because sorry. you've been running an Instagram account with almost 10,000 followers now called Asian Americans for BLM, where you post about all kinds of stuff ranging from politics to affirmative action to model minorities and BLM and all this crazy stuff that's going on in the world. And you talk about it in the context of an Asian American household, which a lot of us can relate to. Growing up in an Asian American household with immigrant parents, we tend to have more conservative leaning parents who have a different way of viewing the world. So why don't you talk about what inspired you to make this account in the first place? Sure. Um, I definitely think I was inspired by both my own experience talking to my parents after the George Floyd protests and also some of the conversations I was having with my Asian American friends um, during that time period who I think were undergoing similar conversations with their parents and like emerging frustrated or um, confused or kind of unsettled by how those conversations went. and. When I like get emotional and when I like have an argument or talk to my parents about politics or serious topics, I often like my brain will blank out. Like all the smart things that I like learn in school or are the argument points that I like have from online, they like just sort of disappear when I am in that environment and under a lot of pressure. So I've always sort of wanted to put that all in one place that people could access and I myself could sort of see on the paper. Um, and that personally has helped me a lot, and I thought that maybe it might help other people in the same way. So I put together a couple graphics that I showed to my friends, and they suggested that I make an Instagram account for it, um, and that's what I did. You said you had a conversation with your parents about the George Floyd incident. Um, can you 
talk more about like what happened and how that directly led to you creating this account? Um, I think it was a it was probably a couple of different conversations where I tried to breach the topics of the protest and just try to gauge how they felt about it, um, what their feelings were towards the Black Lives Matter movement, and um, I found it. I found that there was a lot, a lot of space between sort of my understanding of what America looked like in terms of racial inequality and um, just bias in the world and their sort of perception of the black community and what America looked like. And I found that there was just a very great divide um, in how they perceived not just racism, but also like politics and this whole sort of structure of America. And part of that was a generational divide and part of that was an immigration divide. Uh, but I came out of the conversation like semi-hopeful um, because there was some points where they were understanding me and also semi like really upset because in my head it's like, I don't understand how you're not seeing this even close to the same way I do. Um, so I really wanted to make a succinct and informative way for kids to talk to their parents about these issues so that they wouldn't feel the same level of sort of frustration at the situation. And are these issues of political importance a common topic to even come up in the household? I definitely think they are not. Um, uh, in the past, I think I've tried to talk about affirmative action, I think once my sophomore year with my parents, I remember it very clearly, and um, it didn't go well. And at that time, I knew very little about affirmative action. I just sort of had a general ideology that I felt was right. I didn't really know a lot of the facts. I didn't really know a lot of the history. And so when I got into this argument sort of based on my own ideology, I came out of it feeling defeated and I came out of it like I couldn't breach this topic ever again because I was like humiliated and like upset that my parents thought this way. Um, so I guess I've always been the sort of person to avoid serious topics and avoid political topics in the household. Um, but with as big of a social movement as the recent protests are, I thought it was important to try and understand where they were um, in terms of ideology, in terms of what they thought. Um, partially because I think it's important to sort of spark discussions about this topic, even if you know people aren't going to agree with you. And partially because I think um, as wealthy Asian Americans who might have internalized anti-blackness, even though my parents are, I know are very good people, they also hold the potential to ca cause harm to marginalized communities. Um, whether if it was like they called the police on a black person they thought was suspicious, even though they had no reason to. I could see them doing something like that if I didn't address these issues beforehand or try and, and discuss them in a, in a constructive way. So I decided to bring it up again after what was going on. And do you think bringing these discussions to light has created a void within your family, like a gap, or has it bridged it together more so, like more of a tighter bond now that you're talking about these? Um, I think there's a little bit of both. I think there, I've, we've both sort of realized that there are places in our life where we have very different opinions. Um, and on the other hand, I've, 
talking about these things also led to having some very interesting and productive conversations about things like mental health and like sexual assault and just issues that don't even relate to racism, but just are marginally on the side of what we were talking about and bringing up politics in the first place. And what I found is that, you know, like even though we might disagree, my parents like sort of heart and their attitude of empathy towards other people is in the same place as mine. And, you know, that's something that I feel like, you know, is a positive thing that we everyone took out of this to sort of know what kind of people my family is, regardless of whether they will always agree on me with me politically. Yeah, that's a very interesting point because I think personally, it's okay to disagree on certain issues. Uh, you can still live together, you can still be friends, you can still be family members, um, but there are always gonna be points of like conflicts, right? Where you might disagree or you know, agree with certain issues, especially if they're very controversial. Do you kind of see that in your household, Patrick, as well? My parents definitely have a more conservative view towards these kinds of topics. And now that you talk about this kind of mentality of agreeing to disagree, actually, that's really interesting because when two people disagree on a topic about Black Lives Matter or about affirmative action, do you think there is room to agree to disagree? Or do you think that at the end of the day, one person is right and one person is wrong? Um, here's what I think. I think that everyone's opinion is completely based on their experience and what they know. And I have grown up in a vastly different environment than my parents grew up. And my understanding of diversity, my understanding of American institutions is very, very different than my parents. And um, I, of course, I think that I'm right and my parents are wrong because I'm the one who's arguing with my parents. But I think the room that I can have to agree to disagree is taking the step to understanding why my parents think the way they do. Because if I'm going at this at like, I must persuade you of my point and I will not stop until I do and I completely ignore the fact that they think the way they do, not because that they're hateful racist people, but because they grew up in an environment that didn't approach topics of race the same way I did. Um, there's a lot more room for disagreement or even understanding disagreement. And I can still think they're wrong, but I understand why they think the way they do. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree that empathizing with someone else's viewpoint, it goes a long way in trying to just understand where they're coming from and also trying to win them to your side or just explain to them where your own perspective comes from. Mm-hmm. And if we actually start talking about our own opinions on these topics, so one topic that your Instagram page talks a lot about is affirmative action. And mm -hmm. right now, I believe there is a there is some act to try to repeal this law in California law that would make it so that you can take race into consideration when you're deciding who to admit or not admit. Am I right about that? Or Yeah, so in the 1990s, uh, California passed Prop 209, which basically said that using race is, would not be allowed in public universities or jobs. And ACA 5 is a proposition that will be on our ballots in November, um, is proposing to repeal 209. So basically to say that affirmative action would be legal in California if this proposition were to win. 
and the way that the law we're trying to repeat that the new law is trying to repeal it says you cannot take race into consideration and repealing that would mean that you do take race into consideration yes and so what's your view on that where do you stand on that issue um affirmative action is an incredibly complex topic because I agree with affirmative action in theoretically. I agree with sort of the, there have been a lot of Supreme Court restrictions on affirmative action throughout the years. Um, for example, if affirmative action is legal, which it is in most states, um, quotas, racial quotas are not allowed. And also racial point systems are not allowed. So what that means is if a college wanted to base their admissions on the population. Um, oh, 9% of America is African-American. We'll admit 9% of black students, or 9% of our population will be black students. That's considered unconstitutional. What is constitutional is analyzing each applicant holistically. So the Supreme Court has ruled sort of over and over again that if a college is looking at an applicant's entire application, including their race, um, gender, grades, essays, um, extracurriculars, and well, and income, it would be constitutional for them to take race into account. But if they're having specific quotas at each school or specific point systems, that would be unconstitutional. So theoretically, and that's a certain misconception, right? Yes. That there's um, a quota. Right. And so theoretically, that's something I definitely agree with because I would, I would love it if America was a meritocracy. And, you know, if everyone could get into college based on their merit alone, that would be the ideal system. But the fact of the matter is America is not a meritocracy. Um, black and Latino kids are disproportionately given less... Um, educational resources. They're, like, it's, the gap is astounding. Just because of housing inequality in America and the sort of urbanized schools that marginalized kids are forced into. Just look at SAT scores and if you look at the sort of um, educational extracurricular resources that some groups are given over others, it's clear that America is not a meritocracy and if there isn't some sort of system to try and band-aid that, um, race inequality will never get fixed. So affirmative action, yeah, it's not a solution to inequality at all. It's more of like a Band-Aid solution and not a great one at that. But I support it theoretically, but that doesn't mean I support it unconditionally. Because as we've seen in like the Harvard lawsuit, like I said, this is a very complicated issue. Um, even though racial quotas and point system are unconstitutional, some colleges have seen to sort of try to bypass that and find loopholes to basically discriminate against the Asian American community. So Harvard, for example, in their lawsuit, it was revealed that they were overall rating Asians lower for basically the personality category. And it seems like they were doing that to sort of bypass this quota loophole so that they could basically discriminate against Asian American applicants. So even though there's all these, you know, there's standards, there should be oversight, of course affirmative action isn't gonna be equitable in execution. 
So I support it in theory. I'd support it if there was proper oversight and there was, you know, systems to make sure that these things are equitable and are carried out properly. But, you know, I don't support it unconditionally and I definitely don't support it without like caveats and discussion about how we should make the system better. Yeah. <laughs> I we... see affirmative action as sort of a last resort. Um, I prefer, obviously, I'd prefer sort of preventative measures like, you know, um, funding all schools equally rather than based on, on district. Uh, because that's a large reason for resource inequality is that public schools are largely based on, their funding is based on where you live and not equalized by the state. So, you know, it's a really, really complicated issue. But right. I guess in summary, I do support affirmative action generally. But what about approaches? Like you were just talking about how some districts don't receive as much federal or state funding as other districts. Why not mm -hmm. take that into consideration? Or why not take family income into consideration rather than race? Right. Because race, there are exceptions. There are... Yes. Asian and white students who are not as well off and mm -hmm. vice versa for and those things, African right, American okay. and Latino students. Right. So those things are taken into consideration. You college admissions gets to look at your district, gets to look at how much money your family makes, and also gets to look at race. And why race in itself is important in addition to these things is because um, surveys and census shows that black Americans who make the same amount as white Americans still have significantly less wealth than white Americans. So let me explain that again. If a black family makes 80, is an upper class, a upper class black family is making 100K per year. And so is a white family that is making 100K per year. But the amount of wealth that this white family has just through property and generational wealth statistically is more than twice as much as the wealth that that same black family making the same income has. So if you're going to gauge by income alone, you're not going to see those differences. And you're not going to be able to see the sort of history of generational inequality and history of wealth divides that are sort of entrenched in these structures. So that's why I, that's sort of the argument for why race should be taken in consideration along with all these other factors. Because even if we get rid of race entirely and you look at all the other factors surrounding it, you don't see the complete picture. So if we did include race, would we just be asking the admissions officer to be making a judgment call where the admissions officer says, oh, okay, this applicant is African-American. Okay. Is that all it is? Um, that's all it is and yeah that sounds shitty and it sounds super subjective but that's what the admission process currently looks like and it's definitely not perfect but yeah that's what affirmative action would look like theoretically in application yeah there's a lot of gray area when it comes to this affirmative action because like you said on one hand it can be used to identify underprivileged and less financially uh, stable applicants and basically promote this kind of upper mobility, I guess. Yeah. But on the other hand, with the Harvard case, it would be used to discriminate. So there's a lot of gray area with affirmative action. Emily, you kind of brought this up, but there's no really quantitative way to just basically exactly. take race out of the factor. It's a judgment call, like you said, Patrick. Yeah, I think the fact that it is a judgment call is something that, you know, 
makes me unwilling to accept affirmative action without caveats or without discussion. But I think about the fact that at the same time, pretty much all of private college admissions in America is a judgment call. There are these, I mean, anyone who has had a, had a really smart friend get, re, get rejected knows that it's all bullshit. Like, the, these are subjective decisions that these admissions officers are making, whether or not they're including race. And I personally think that race should be included to understand the bigger picture. I, that doesn't mean I think the system is good at distinguishing who's a good student or not in every case, regardless. So there's also that. Another topic that your Instagram covers is that possibly a reason why Asian parents might oppose affirmative action is a sense of resentment where they think, oh, I came to this country, I was dirt poor, I had nothing. And one or two generations later, now I'm giving my kids opportunity to go to college. So why should these other minorities get a leg up from the government? Mm -hmm. So what's your what's your response to that? Um, my response to that is that you are the I'm talking to the parent now that they are ignoring the history behind both their own experience as an immigrant and the experience of different minorities because they're assuming that we all started from the same spot when in reality if we're going to look at for example Chinese immigrants because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, we Chinese immigrants weren't even allowed in America until the 1960s, after the Civil Rights Movement or during the Civil Rights Movement. So they never experienced slavery. They've never experienced Jim Crow. They've never experienced the housing inequality or redlining that the black community has faced, right? So they're focusing on their own experience as immigrants, which I'm sure, of course, is difficult, is one that they worked hard for and one that they sort of were able to get to the place that they were at now, but they're sort of ignoring the different experiences that other minorities have had. It, the history of black America and the history of Asian Americans, it's, it's not the same. And it, I don't think it's comparable. Um, and at the same time, I don't want to make it seem like it should be oppression Olympics and we should be like constantly comparing who has it worse because I don't think that's productive either. But a lot of these parents, first of all, have sort of been fed that mentality by, um, well, in the 1960s, when Asian Americans first started to move to America, a lot of newspapers started covering Asian Americans as success stories. So white Americans, like the New York Times or the Washington Post, there were multiple um, articles basically coining the term model minority, talking about Chinese Americans that were succeeding or Japanese Americans that were succeeding. And these editorials basically straight up said, this shows that a minority can succeed in America. They were basically justifying their mistreatment of black Americans by saying, look, this other minority can make it. We're just ignoring the completely different circumstances that these people are in. So I think this sort of ideology that Asian Americans are a model minority, that you know we are able to get to where we are because we work hard. Um, first of all, it, you know, it's a stereotype, it's a generalization of all Asian Americans and all other minorities. And second of all, it sort of ignores the really complex history of both minority communities. Oh, Siri activated. Sorry. And um, what the history looks like in America. So I guess I would 
that's how I respond to parents who have that sort of attitude. And a lot of kids also have that sort of attitude where I don't think they necessarily think that they are better than other communities. But it's very easy to sort of attribute uh, financial and success differences to culture or like hard work rather than looking at um, the history behind what's actually going on. What I find interesting is that I think a lot of people take a subset of a certain ethnic group or racial group or whatever it is, and then they kind of generalize that to the majority. So I guess in the case of Asians, maybe the majority is hardworking and they end up being a lot more successful than, you know, the average person. But at the same time, when you're talking about when Asian immigrants came over to America and they had a lot of success stories, I'm sure that wasn't necessarily the norm at the beginning. Um, yeah, and if perhaps... you look at, sorry, Richard, <laughs> but if you look at the Asian American community as a whole, um, the wealth divide in the Asian American community, so between poor Asian Americans and rich Asian Americans, that wealth divide is bigger than any other minority group in America. So what that means is, yeah, we're taking these success stories and we're using it to generalize this entire community. Burmese Americans, I, this statistic might be wrong, so I'm, I might not say it actually, but they are making substantially less than Chinese Americans and Korean Americans, and their income rates are absolutely dramatically lower than the typical East Asian American. So the model minority myth isn't just hurting, you know, other minorities. It's hurting Asian Americans by using su successful subgroups or successful individuals to sort of generalize about the Asian American community and put down other minorities. Is the general argument that Asian Americans were able to advance in wealth so much faster than these other minorities just it partly or a large reason because they did not face the same hurdles that other minorities did? Or what's the reason? Yeah, so I'm, okay, the way I sort of see it, yes, that's basically the argument. And the sort of way that I would sort of see it is that um, black Americans have always been seen as a threat by white America. Um, after abolition and, you know, after, after abolition, Jim Crow and the KKK sprouted up for a reason. It's because after, you know, there is a shot at equality, there have been institutional structures in place to make sure that black, a lot of black Americans don't succeed. And sometimes that has been Jim Crow. And sometimes that's literally the fact that black American, black sounding names get hired much less than white sounding names, even if they have the exact same resume. It's that while Asian Americans were allowed to succeed because we weren't perceived as a threat to white America, because they perceive us as meek and docile and, you know, hardworking and contributing members of society. Um, black Americans have never been given that same grace. And um, they've had much more systemic obstacles to face. And so by sort of saying it's because of our work ethic and culture, you're ignoring those historical obstacles. What kind of hurdles do white America put on purpose and not on purpose on black Americans because they feel threatened? Uh, for example, like redlining in the 1980s, not 1980s, 1930s to the 1980s, um, black Americans were basically only allowed to live in certain urbanized, ghettoized neighborhoods. 
and they were not allowed to take out loans from the bank to move to other neighborhoods. Obviously, that affected education. Obviously, that affected standard of living and ability to escape poverty. So basically, from the 1930s to the 1970s, redlining was a thing in America, and black Americans were not allowed to leave the neighborhoods that they were in because banks were literally not giving them loans because of the color of their skin and because of systems in place that reinforce housing inequality. So Asian Americans were able to get loans to get into you know, nicer neighborhoods, nicer educational districts um, when they started living in America. That's just one example. Um, but it's those sort of things that, you know, it's, it's a long generational thing. Obviously, it sort of starts from slavery and the fact that, you know, black people were brought here solely for the purpose of boosting our economy and as property. And because of that, our economic system has always sort of relied on this oppression. And it's been very hard to move away from that even hundreds of years later. Um, because, okay, this is getting a little bit too radical because, you know, we're still exploiting the working class to some extent in America. How do we exploit the working class? <laughs> I think that's a much more complicated topic and that's going to fall more into uh, a discussion on whether capitalism is inherently ethical. Um, but I mean, I just, from the wealth divide between the upper class and the lower class, I think there's pretty clear evidence that, you know, a lot of Americans aren't getting treated poorly from the current system of capitalism that we currently live in. Mm. But I guess like, um, based on what you said, Emily, the common argument is that a lot of people, everyone is born equal nowadays and everyone has equal rights, but you're saying that there's still traces of like things like redlining that are still applying to these minorities today that really have to, you just have to solve them over time. You can't just implement a law and immediately expect everything to be equal, right? Yeah, I, yeah, that's very similar to yeah, my main point is that, you know, even after legally everything was made equal, people still have inherent biases, which is one thing, but there are still sort of institutionalized um, structures that work against marginalized communities. And speaking of institutionalized racism, right now there's the BLM movement, right? Yeah. And that's a direct move to oppose that and to kind of basically get rid of this institution racism. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, what does it mean to be a BLM supporter or a BLM activist? Because I feel like a lot of people are on this path where they say, yeah, I support BLM, but there's such a broad spectrum of people, right? There's people who are very passive supporters. There are people who are very active supporters. And then there's also very radical supporters. So I was wondering, what does it mean to be a BLM supporter? Um, honestly, I don't know if I can truly speak to that because I consider myself, sure, I consider myself like an activist and um, someone who supports the BLM movement, but at the same time, I'm not a black American and I don't have a full understanding of what this movement's, what the ideal end goal is um, for a lot of, it, obviously it looks different for a lot of different Americans. 
And um, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a diverse set of viewpoints within this larger movement that wants to address institutionalized racism in America. Um, I think, you know, as long as you're doing your best to educate yourself and you're doing your best to be empathetic to other people, you know, you're doing what you can. And that's, that's what's important is that if enough people care enough and enough people try to understand what it takes to make change, that eventually change will happen. Very vague answer to your question. <laughs> no, it's a tough question because you can talk about like, what does it mean to be conservative or what does it mean to be an Asian American? And people have radically different political beliefs, um, beliefs about what should be done with the economy, healthcare, social security. I mean, you can't really extract a very, very generalized idea of like what everyone agrees on or what right. they disagree on. Yeah. But I thought it was worth diving into. Yeah. And, and is there... Mm -hmm, go on. Oh, I was just thinking that like, there's a lot of discussion, especially on social media, of people who are sort of probably more on the radical side of the spectrum, which I mean, I definitely am more on the left side of the spectrum in, on these issues as well, but who are unwilling to have conversations with people who might be in support of the movement, um, but have different views on stuff like abolishing the police or um, defunding the police or um, like police reform. And I've seen a lot of, you know, allies and activists who blatantly will reject conversations or say that um, people with good intentions who are doing their best to learn about the movement are um, are like actively racist or dismissing uh, these important conversations because they don't believe that it's worth engaging with people who are frustrating. So I definitely think there's a lot of room to sort of have more constructive discussions. And I think that people sort of need to understand that everyone is a product of what they grew up learning and what they grew up understanding and that nobody's gonna benefit from you completely dismissing their argument or dismissing their point of view if you don't take the time to find middle ground or try to explain where you're coming from. So I definitely think that's something that I think should be important to the movement is the ability to have a conversation um, about our goals and about what it means to be an activist and what it means to be an ally. Do you think there's an, a difference between supporting the idea of BLM and supporting the movement? answer that one. <laughs> what do you mean? For me, the idea of BLM, a lot of people agree with the fact that everyone should have equality, but not everyone agrees on the way to get there, right? Yeah. So this idea of like social reform and like, you know, there's a bunch of different ways to achieve like equality. Some mm -hmm. people think it's defunding the police. Some mm -hmm. people think it's getting rid of certain like laws or implementing certain laws. Right. Yeah, I don't know where I was going <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with people having different opinions on how to get there. And mm. I, I think you can be a, completely be a supporter of the ideology of, of the movement and have a certain idea of how you think um, that reform should be implemented. That might be different than most major BLM supporters or BLM activists or the loudest voices in the movement. Because this is probably the biggest social movement in the last few decades. And of course, people are going to have differing views and differing end goals here. 
But, you know, the common theme is that people understand that racism is causing violence <laughs> and that needs to change. And fundamentally, if, you know, if millions of people can agree on that, then hopefully there will be change. I do agree that most of us, we do agree on the end goal where I think it'd be hard to find an American who would say, I think that <laughs> black Americans are lesser than white Americans. I think black Americans should be given fewer opportunities than white Americans. And I do think that the devil's in the details. So even some conservative arguments, oh, how do we help black Americans? We have to end the welfare state. We have to <laughs> figure out how to get their families back yeah. together. We have to figure sure. out how they, we have to figure out how to get them to stop using drugs. The government's causing all these problems. So I do think that there are a lot of different perspectives on how we achieve racial equality and that some of these perspectives are openly conflicting. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know where I was going with that either. But <laughs> I, I think that there, the, the argument that oh, we're all aiming in the same direction. We just have different perspectives. I think everyone agrees with that, but it's not a productive argument to make because it is in the direction that we want to fight and the procedures that we want to use that's causing all this arguing. Yeah, and I, you know, that's something I sort of struggle with myself. Um, I find myself looking at some of the goals of prominent activists and prominent people in the movement. And I think ideology-wise, I am much more radical than maybe the average American. But practically, I don't think that any of the sort of pipe dreams I have are achievable. So I wonder that, like, if in expressing my opinion, should I be expressing them at the very most um, radical of my ideology, but won't that turn some people off and make me less likely to achieve my goal? Should I be going for more practical goals that, you know, might betray what I think would truly be the best solution, but I think is the most realistic way to create change? Like, these are conversations that a lot of Americans are having and a lot of activists are having with the people around them because, Patrick, you're definitely right. Even within liberal arguments about Black Lives Matter, there's a lot of conflicting perspectives on what the most effective way to bring change is. And I don't think that means that there won't be change. I definitely think that the way change will be enacted and the way people see the productivity will be different case by case. And I think that's, you know, that's something I struggle with too, is figuring out how I want to express my opinions and what would be the most productive way for me to be an activist. I definitely do think that being productive means moderating yourself. And that's just the perspective that I have where I come from. For example, I don't know, if you look at Abe Lincoln, when he was trying to fight for the 13th Amendment, he didn't talk at all about voting rights. He didn't talk at all about equality of the races, only equality before the law. And mm -hmm. even before the 13th Amendment, when he was trying to prevent the Civil War, he didn't even talk about ending slavery. So I do yeah. think that taking slow steps is the way to go. I think when you look at the 1960s movement, for example, it's really easy for these movements to become radicalized and that turns off moderates and that turns off the majority of the people that ideally you would have on your side. Mm -hmm. So I think even if you see your ideal in the distance, 
my perspective is still that you should moderate yourself every step of the way. And the sort of practical side of me ag- agrees with that. But at the same time, I understand that by moderating myself, that's a privileged point of view. Because I have the sort of privilege to, to have my ideology over here and be okay with taking small practical change. But the people whose lives are directly affected by that change probably want more radical voices. They want people supporting their ideas. They need people to have empathy and radical ideas in order for their situation to truly improve in a way that is meaningful, right? If we're talking about Abe Lincoln, I'm sure the slaves did not appreciate him never talking about uh, emancipation until emancipation actually happened because they didn't have a voice speaking out for them. They didn't have the support of loud people who were willing to voice those opinions. And they just had moderation, which just seemed like, you know, a political maneuver rather than true ideology. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated subject. I, I'd, I'd like to be practical. I'd also like to be empathetic. And I think that's a difficult thing to sort of figure out. Yeah, it certainly is a matter of perspective, isn't it? Because if an issue directly applies to your race or whatever subgroup you're in, then you want change immediately. If you grew up in a very underfunded neighborhood with a really bad education system, then obviously you want to improve the state of your neighborhood or whatever education system you're growing up in. Or like... If you are LGBT, I even mm. if you want to be practical about it, I'm not going to be the one. Like, if you are LGBT, you don't want people saying, well, like, I have a gay friend. Like, maybe they deserve marriage rights, but, like, I don't want them working in my workplace. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's a practical small step that people are taking, and it might be helpful for the movement, but it sure isn't helpful for your safety at that moment and your livelihood. So I, I guess that's where the question is, is how important is it to be the voice for those who are in situations that they can't escape? But if we look at the LGBT movement, I think that, for example, in the 90s, when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was mm-hmm. was enacted and people said, okay, you can serve in the military if you're gay as long as you don't say so. I think in the 90s, if you had advocated for gay rights in the workplace like we do today, I think the entire movement would have been very hurt because people would have been turned off by that. And But the thing is, there were people advocating for that. They were just more on the more radical side of the spectrum, right? And mm-hmm. it's about where you sort of want to, f- you, where you want to fall when history like looks back at you, I guess, right? Like, do you want to be the person who was saying these things 50 years in advance because you were the voice for for people who needed empathy and they needed radical change now? Or, I mean, it's also incredibly valuable and incredibly meaningful to be the one who enacts small practical change. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting point. What is seemingly normal now might be considered radical decades before. I'm sure like certain civil rights leaders like Abe Lincoln or or Luther King, like I'm sure they were seen as very, very radical at the time. Yeah. But nowadays it seems as like, a, of course, we should have advocated for equality. Right, exactly. And, and like, Patrick, there were abolitionists when the founding fathers existed. 
right? They were definitely, they were not seen as crazy. They were seen as unrealistic and unpractical and like driven by ideology. But we know now that I have so much more respect for them. And they were able to make small changes. John Lawrence was an abolitionist at the be- during the American Revolution, and he formed the first black battalion. People did not think he was practical or able to make change at all, but we, history remembers him as an, one of the first abolitionists in America. So I, I think there's definitely worth in being radical, and there's, there's, there's integrity in you know, speaking what you believe, even if it won't make change in that exact moment. But then during that time period, it was the congressman who argued for the Missouri Compromise, who at least got slavery out of the North forever. It was those people who did fight for moderate change that caused change for so many more, in that case, Black Americans, but in other cases, people who are disenfranchised, people who are underrepresented. So I, yeah, yeah. so I, yeah, I see it. I see it both ways, too, that there is value in fighting purely for what you believe even if it might be considered radical for your time. Yeah. It's a little bit of both. It's complicated. And yeah, that's something I, I struggle with too. I'm not definitely not saying that practicality is immoral or unethical or unempathetic in any way. And speaking in the same vein, the same idea, what do you think about how we judge historical figures in the context of their times versus in the context of our times? For example, if you look at, <laughs> if you look at George Washington owned slaves, Thomas Jefferson yeah. owned slaves, yeah. Abe Lincoln for a time argued that black people should go back to Africa. Yeah. Um, I think, okay, I think it goes back to intent. Um, did they have the intent to harm? Uh, and obviously you have to have a very in-depth knowledge of the historical context of the time. But let's look at those, maybe let's look at Thomas Jefferson, for example, right? He not only owned slaves, but he raped a great deal of his female slaves. In fact, one of them was notoriously used for the purpose of his sexual pleasure, and he fathered many, 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 many children with her, Sally Hemings. I, am, I believe that his intent there was malicious. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, I see Thomas Jefferson as less, I have less respect of him because of that. George Washington, when he died, he freed his slaves. Clearly, he had some understanding that it wasn't moral to have them if he wanted to free them when he died. I don't know if I have less respect for him for, yes, I have less respect for him for owning slaves, but I understand for the context of his time, he had good intent and he did more good (laughs) through his intent. I think it's, obviously, it's really complicated. It's good to understand the context and it's also good to try to examine intent. And I think that's, Intent and also what the what the after effects were. So in Thomas Jefferson's case, I think his intent was malicious, and what happened after that also sucked. Sally Hemings gave birth to so many children who were disowned and abused and became slaves. Like I don't I don't think that Thomas I have less respect for him because of that, right? Um, but I understand that 
the fact that he even owned slaves is because of the context of his time. So yeah, I, I, I'd like to think that I look like context, intent, and sort of what the effects were and whether more harm or good was done. And I think um, it's very easy for us to justify like, oh, well, slave owning was normal. But like I said, there were abolitionists at the time. There were people that understood that slavery was immoral. It's just that people were able to justify it during that time period a lot better than they were able to just, that anyone would be able to justify it now. So I think we can judge historical characters, um, but we do have to understand the context of their times as well as the intent in which they were performing their actions. I don't know if that makes sense. That makes sense. Do you think in a hundred years we'll be, we'll be damned for using diesel fuel cars? Probably. Or eating animals who grew up in caged habitats? Yeah, I fully think so. Ethical capitalism, very, very difficult. And do I, do I hope that in 30, 40 years, a hundred years, that people are saying, I think that Emily's intent was good. And clearly you can see that from this, this, this that she did and the context in which she was living. But you know, inevitably she did cause harm to the environment through the, these, these actions and it's important to address that. Do you think we should take down statues of Thomas Jefferson? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a whole other issue. Um, I don't know, I'd like to put a, a big fat plaque next to all of them that describes things that I don't agree with that he did. I think that I, yeah, I think that Confederate statues should all be moved to a museum, Confederate museum somewhere and placed in the context in which they are deserved, which is American traitors. Um, so I think, I think all statues are a result of the ideology of the people who put up those statues. And we need to understand that and not glorify historical figures for the sake of glorification or nationalism. What do you think about Thomas Jefferson's statues? Oh, me? What do I think of the statues? Yeah. I think they should be kept up. Yeah. Because I think statues? if we look at him overall, we can acknowledge uh -huh. that he was an extremely flawed and contradictory figure, that right. he broke all of his ideals, that he was wrong on so many fronts, he was evil in so many ways. But mm -hmm. he still contributed immeasurably to the American cause in both the revolution and right. the founding of our country. And mm -hmm. I think that we can acknowledge his shortcomings, extreme as they were, while also admiring or acknowledging all the things he did for our country. I agree. But do you think that is best exemplified with a statue with no other context surrounding it? You get a statue and you get a plaque that says Thomas Jefferson, blah, 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 until 17, whatever, 18, he lives pretty long. Yeah, you're not getting that context of his flawed character and what he contributed and what his shortcomings were. You're getting a statue that's showing this is representative of American ideals. And that's where the problem comes in, is that people aren't seeing that context because a statue in its implicit nature is glorification of a figure. But I do think that sticking an asterisk on all of our former people who contributed a lot to this country or were great in general, just because mm -hmm. they hold some view that we don't agree today, I do think that is a little bit egotistical 
and self-congratulatory. I don't think anybody really sees a statue of Thomas Jefferson and thinks, okay, maybe they do think that he was. Let's look an at Confederate statues. Person. That's the point. Is that the fact that there are Confederate statues that exist? That people put those up because they agreed with what that person was doing, right? They agreed with this ideology. And why are these statues still up today? Because people still think that that ideology and that person is important to remember because of what they did and what they thought. And there goes the problem: is that you're taking it out of context and putting it in a, in our modern context where people can continue to glorify.、Um, These figures, without understanding the complexity of what kind of people they were, I think. Yeah, I don't. I think they should put in museums. Personally, a Confederate statue. Put it in a Confederate museum where people can go visit all the traitors and understand that they are all traitors. But Thomas Jefferson. I mean, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. I, I still think his statue should be in a park. I think、sure. I don't think it's extremely damaging to people. I think we should still honor him for all the good he did for our country. I think that's fair, and I definitely I would I'm more pro putting more explanatory explanatory plaques and information next to statues like that because I yeah it's. Easy for us to say that he did more good than harm, or you know, we're looking at the complexity of this figure. But if you're a descendant of, of if you're a black descendant of Thomas Jefferson, I'm sure you're not looking at that statue and being like, "Yeah, it's okay that this guy is up here, knowing that I'm only here today because I was because my Sally Hemings was raped." It's a lot more complicated. Do you think that I don't know if I can't speak for that person? Some people in that position don't feel good. Some people in that position couldn't give a shit. So, I think it's complicated. But if we、and、start putting plaques, and I think it's helpful plaques, to have excess information. If we start putting plaques on statues, where do we draw the line? We we see an FDR statue. We put however, comma he cheated on his wife. We see a. Teddy, I think that's. We see a completely different. An Andrew Jackson statue. But however, the Trail of Tears. Oh, Andrew Jackson absolutely sucks. <laughs> he should be. I, no, I Andrew Jackson. The plaque should say he was a controversial character in American history for these actions. <laughs> Because guess what? He was a controversial his figure in American history. You exactly. If they put a, if someone in like fucking South Carolina puts a statue of Trump up, right? I would like it's because they think that his ideology is worth glorifying, and I would like some clarification on who this guy is and whether he's worth glorifying a hundred years in the future. And I would like that plaque to say he was a controversial figure in American history、um, because he put kids in cages, for example. Like I, I think that's important knowledge for anyone looking at that figure to have. Isn't there an argument that people can? Learn this context on their own and develop their own opinion, rather、For、than、sure. having to resort to reading a plaque. Right, but the innate nature of a statue is glorifying、mm -hmm. it. Yeah, and I think it's irresponsible for public places to allow that without people being fully informed. Because if 
that's on, that's on the school then, right? If that statue is on, a, Robert E. Lee is on Duke's campus, that's on the responsibility of Duke. Does Duke feel like it's okay for people? Do, does Duke feel like everyone who sees that will be able to discern that Duke isn't glorifying Robert E. Lee? Or does Duke want to communicate that this person doesn't stand for their values? I think it's an issue about like what's inherently right and what's practical, right? Because there's a lot of gray area in what you should like. Let's say you know you have you erect a new statue of some controversial figure. He contributed a lot, but he also did a lot of bad. Then how are you to decide what text goes on that plaque without being unfairly biased towards one side or another? I I feel like that's just an issue with practicality, whether. Like, I think I inherently agree with you, but I don't know how we would solve that. Like, every time we erect a new statue, we would have to have some comprehensive overview of, like, you would have to basically come up with a decision whether he did net positive or net yeah. negative and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and come up with a succinct paragraph to encapsulate all that. that <laughs> that's such a difficult thing to do. I definitely agree with you. And I think that's part, that's a conversation that definitely ties into like art in general and whether by painting certain things or creating certain things what you're contributing to the world and whether your message is clear and yeah there are a lot of confederate statues out there which where their plaques and their informations are portraying these confederate generals as heroes and that's representative of what that town believes and what the people who erected that statue believe. Yeah, and I definitely think it's even complicated to say that, like, it's, well, yeah, I think it's invalid. Okay, maybe cut this part out. I don't have a fully <laughs> thought there. It's okay. Um, you know, we can go back to the Instagram because <laughs> I wanted to know, I wanted to know, personally, I don't know if Patrick wants to know, but I wanted to know how you grew this account. How did you spread the word? I, I didn't. I um I followed maybe like two hundred of my friends, and then uh it it just happened to blow up. And I I definitely think I got lucky. I also definitely think that um I I understand that if I make things look pretty, that people will pay more attention to them, which kind of you know sucks. But if I can make things look pretty, I'm going to use that to my advantage. <laughs> um, so I was lucky that a couple of my posts blew up. A couple people with a significant amount of followers reposted them, and um, it, in a couple weeks, I had a lot of followers. I didn't really do anything on my own. Did it explode from the stories that you posted, or, or was it like from the post itself? Our Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, no, I was, want to. It was the, sure. It well, was, fine. <laughs> it was, um, so on Instagram, you can if you post something someone else can put that post on their story. And um, I think that's definitely the fastest way I've grown. Um, okay, here, here are my thoughts, is that during, in the last couple of months, people have started to use Instagram as an educational resource because um, a lot of times people feel like the education they received about black history in high school was inadequate and they wanna learn more. And now with this mass movement, uh, people have been posting those educational resources on social media. So that sort of environment made it 
easier for me to gain an audience because people were already open to looking for educational resources and they were already reposting that sort of stuff on their stories. Um, and a couple of people, I think a company, a fashion company with like 20K followers reposted one of my things, an Instagram influencer. And like also I'm, I was weirdly big in like the medical community. I had three different doctors with over 10K posts repost my stuff. So then more doctors follow me. And so, yeah, it was just sort of like a, a domino effect where a couple people with a large following uh, shared my content and then it sort of it sort of gained traction from there. Wow. And it seems like audience reception is really big. I mean, you have like 8,300 followers currently and one of your posts went kind of viral with 18.3k followers or, or likes. And what have you gained from all of this? Because now that there's like a platform for you to voice kind of all of your all these educational aspects ranging from political topics like affirmative action to Black Lives Matter. Like how has that impacted you and what do you think you've gained? Um, well, if you notice, I have not posted in about a month now. And mm -hmm. so I have gained what I've gained is I've gained a platform. Um, what I've also gained is that I've gained a lot of anxiety about whether or not I'm qualified to be speaking on these issues and educating <laughs> others because the only thing I have is a lot of passion and a lot of time to research and maybe a, a little bit of historical knowledge. So I, I don't have an, a degree in Asian American history. I don't have a degree in black history. I am spouting my opinions and I want my opinions to be well informed. And I don't want to be creating content just for the sake of creating content. Uh, so I sort of decided that the next time I do post, it will be because I found a topic that I want to talk about passionately and um, I will do the adequate amount of research to do so responsibly. Um, so I, I've gained a platform, but I've also gained sort of self-reflection on um, what it means to have a platform and what it means to speak out about issues because they don't, none of these people have a face behind the name unless they're doing some digging. They don't know that I'm 19 and I don't actually have degrees in this. They're just here to learn more about stuff they're interested in and I wanna do so responsibly. So I guess that's what I've taken away and what I've gained is, um, you know, I wanna work in publication in the future, whether that's writing or graphic or some sort of educational platform. So I, I guess I've taken away a lot about what it means to to publish and what it means for people to actually pay attention to your work. Because I've been writing and spouting my opinions for the last five years and I really haven't given a shit about who looks at my stuff because I don't think more than 200 people have read what I've written collectively in totality before, before this. Maybe my friends, maybe pa definitely Patrick. I know Patrick. I, read all, I read all your bullseye. <laughs> Editorials. I know Patrick is very dedicated. And your review on I read on a few Doctor of them too. Strange. You reviewed Doctor Thank Strange you. one time. My movie and book reviews. Yeah. Um and b before I was perfectly okay with spouting my opinion before people were reading them. But now that people are reading them, <laughs> that's a lot of pressure. And so I've sort of gotten to think about 
what it means to publish and what it means to put out information in the world. And that's something I think Patrick and I have learned too, being on this podcast, right? Because we kind of have to do a little bit of homework when we talk about certain topics and we kind of risk coming off as ignorant or blatantly wrong if we don't have this responsibility of like, you know, diving into these topics beforehand. Yeah, Richard and I have a huge responsibility to our 40 viewers. (laughs) <laughs> you never know i'm sure they you never know <laughs> yeah shall we talk about your podcast actually because oh you have a uh, podcast yes. of your own sure um you want to talk about what it's about and what it's called <laughs> sure it's called here's what i think about that um it is me and my college friends um amani claudia anna and celia and we basically choose a couple topics to argue about what we think about that. Um, this, my, our inspiration was sort of first semester when we were together, we would argue about really mundane topics like whether forks or spoons were better or like whether um, like a certain Girl Scout cookie was better. And um, my friends are all very opinionated, very articulate people. Uh, so we thought it would be funny to sort of capture that passion for mundane topics in a podcast. Um, and so it's kind of lighthearted. It's kind of ironic that we're spending a lot of time arguing about stupid shit, like whether Adam Driver is attractive. But um, the fun part is that all my friends are really passionately arguing their points. Um, it's for my friends. It's definitely not a podcast that is like, widely publicized um it was just to like sort of capture our dynamic and give our friends a good laugh and so and also something to do during quarantine good to hear we have a fellow podcast guest (laughs) (laughs) so we can relate to you i'm glad (laughs) (laughs) wait (laughs) yeah i feel feel like this was the less interesting part of (laughs) For our listeners, if you got if you got to this part, know that Emily has a podcast. You can follow it. It's called Here's What I Think About That on Spotify. Yeah. Thanks for the shout out. <laughs> Shall we wrap it up or is there anything we want to talk about? Oh, no. I, I am very appreciative of anyone who has been willing to listen to me rant about various <laughs> political and social topics for the last hour. So... I appreciate you guys giving me that platform. Cool stuff. Anything you want to add, Patrick, or shall we wrap it up? No, I think we should wrap it up. Alrighty. Well, thanks for listening. Feel free to follow It's Over Pod on Instagram. We also have an email, it's over pod for real at gmail.com for any topic suggestions or I don't know, if you want to be a guest, you'd probably DM us, but you could also reach us there. And uh, we'd like to thank our guest Emily for coming on. Do you want to plug anything? Um, any handles? Sure. Follow Asian Americans for BLM on Instagram if you want to see me struggle with my responsibility about posting educational content. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or follow my podcast, Here's What I Think About That, on Spotify, where I will tell you what I think about that. <laughs> Thank you. Cool. So we have a signature sign-off. We say it's over at every episode. All together? On the counter of three. Okay. So one, two, three. It's over. It's over. It's over.